1: Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting edition of the Remnant podcast. We're going to do something a little different today. I swear this is not simply an excuse for me to uh, name drop uh, my book and guilt you people into buying it. (laughs) Yes, it is. But it's not solely that. (laughs) Um, So um, I have done something weird here. I have brought in – so let me put it this way. I get asked all the time about the book business, what it's like to – write a book? How do you get a book? Do you need an agent? Is the publishing industry doomed? All of these sorts of things. And, I, and in a weird way, I've had it most of my life because I grew up with my mom being a literary agent and I worked for her for a little while. And um, But the industry has changed so much that I usually don't have good answers. So I usually f- either uh, make stuff up or <laughs> give them best guesses. Or if it's something that I'm also curious about too, I ask uh, this guy, Jay Mandel, who is uh, my agent and the agent of other people in the conservative pantheon, but not just the conservative pantheon. Yeah, all, okay. all
0: many parts of the pantheon. Yes, you, all pantheons. Yeah, it's a, all it's pantheons. A, it's a pantheon, right. yeah. And
1: so Jay Mandel, you are, you're, do you have a specific title at William Morris I, I, Endeavor? Or? Uh,
0: sort of, but you can call me a partner. Okay. That's helpful.
1: So you're a partner. And you've been a literary agent for how long?
0: So long. I've been in the business since uh, 1994. I essentially came straight out of school. I worked in a little teeny office. Not sure how big your mom's business was, but it was... Smaller than you were It was up. five people. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was pretty typical of the book publishing industry. Lots of boutique literary agencies doing representation. And that was called the Virginia Barber Agency. And I worked for and still work with a woman named Jennifer Rudolph Walsh, who was partners at the time with... With the namesake Virginia Barber, and we spent – I spent seven more years in that office before our company was bought by then William Morris, now WME. Right.
1: And WME stands for?
0: William Morris Endeavor. That's right. Yeah.
1: And not not to cast aspersions on the vital and important work that you do, but, <laughs> but. <laughs> the biggest slice of the pie is all the movie star kind of stuff. Yes.
0: No, did, we, right? are, we are a, a fun, artsy sideshow, but I, I think an internally beloved one. So – and is there
1: much synergy where you bring in a book that then you figure out to turn into a movie to turn into whatever? Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, uh-huh.
0: we're we I, in all seriousness, I think the the notion of underlying rights and intellectual pop- property in our books is is pretty crucial uh-huh. to the Hollywood component of the business. We sell a lot of stuff into the film and television world, and we have people like yourself who have broadcasting careers, and we have... We have <laughs> such uh, as it is. Such as it is. Um, <laughs> and we have... We have a lot of writers who are who are thinkers, philosophers, historians, professors, scientists who have very meaningful lecture businesses, yeah. and we sell our. And then the, you have Greg Gutfeld. And then we have Greg Gutfeld, <laughs> of course, right? The, the, the mothership, and uh, and we have we work pretty hard to sell the rights to our books around the world, right? Um, and the you know the American marketplace is is definitely the biggest in the world, so we managed to do a pretty good job of that,
1: but. So you say the American marketplace is the biggest in the world. It's not because per capita we're the biggest readers, right? It's sort of a
0: it's an X yes. and Y graph thing. Yes. We have a lot of readers
1: and we're a big country.
0: That's right. Right. There's the occasional shocking, wildly outsized success in the Netherlands that would require, you know, two thirds of Americans to buy a title right. to be comparable. Yeah. Um
1: All right, so let's start at the beginning. Say I have a friend who wants to write a book. Um. (laughs) Bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) Bad idea, right. Right, So maybe you can explain it this way. (laughs) Um, My understanding is – one of my big complaints is that as a syndicated columnist, I do pretty well. The problem is the syndicated column business has fallen off underneath my feet, right? There will never be as an economic – as a business model another George Will or Charles Krauthammer simply because of the declining nature of newspapers. Right. But I somehow – was much luckier when it comes to books in the sense that my first book did well. And in publishing, if you have a proven sales record, you can still get a book published. Not It's not easy, but it's easier, right? What would be your advice to a first-time nonfiction author who says they want to write a book?
0: So the first thing I would say is that there's a – not all nonfiction is built the same, uh-huh. right? So if you are a budding popular historian or uh, – a budding political commentator or a budding popular science writer—they're not really. Uh, the paths don't quite look alike. Mm-hmm. For for, the, I would say the thing that has probably changed in the nonfiction side of the business more than really anything since I started is how incredibly important the notion of a personal brand is. Right. It doesn't mean that everybody that that radical kind of. Um, Self promotion is required to succeed in the book business. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of different paths toward it. And the best publishers in this country are, are pretty excellent at deploying the resources of the book itself and the writer's personality and finding ways to, to promote the material. But it really helps a lot, mm-hmm. right? So if you are, you know, if you're doing something in the journalistic realm, your journalistic profile ends up being pretty crucial right. to the degree to which you can succeed. And the way I tend to think about these things is that there is, you know, the higher your profile in some ways, the the lower the bar is for the book proposal that will will eventually get the material sold to a publisher. Right. Uh, the lower your profile, the more you actually have to um, knock people's socks off when you're presenting the, the bones of the idea to them. There are not that many people in the nonfiction space who – Spring forth from total anonymity mm-hmm. into massive best-selling success. It's a pretty hard thing to do. It to me feels as though one needs to build that personal brand, have have some degree of recognition, ideally have accrued some kind of audience for yourself, and then you set off into the world to try to, to try to get a book deal.
1: How crucial is it to have an agent? Then,
0: well, again, depends a little bit on the path. I mean, I, I there is an, a, a critical piece of this that there there have been. Countless discussions about the world of self-publishing, which is obviously kind of radically shifted in the era of the e-book. But there's been a lot less of it done on the nonfiction side, in success anyway, than on the fiction side. The agent is really, really important for what you might view as kind of corporate, mainstream, high-profile publishing. The publishers that the average person has heard of, the sort of HarperCollins and Random Houses and Simon Schuster's of the world, don't, you know, they buy virtually nothing from unrepresented authors. Right. So that foot in the door is a crucial piece of it. I mean, you know, the agent provides, the, the good agent provides all kinds of value, ideally, right? right. Um, an editorial voice, a curation of the editors to whom they're sending the material, a, a strong sense of the marketplace you know, marketplace positioning when they're making their phone calls and talking to their author. But, you know, what, what you, above and beyond all that, you are, you are getting a little bit of a seal of approval too. Right. You know, the agents, the best agents have their own brands and they, they can create a shortcut to getting an editor's attention, allowing that editor to believe I may not buy this book but I'm definitely going to read this material and right. see how I feel it's about it. It's worth taking the meeting, right? It's worth – yeah, it's a worth It's worth at least sniffing it out. Right.
1: I mean, so it's funny. I grew up – so my mom ran her agency out of our house, and one of the things I used to do is – because I was a sci-fi geek – is I would read the unsolicited sci-fi manuscripts that came in. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm sure there were some eccentrics.
1: And, and to say they were terrible really is very generous. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that's one of the things I think that people – like I find this as a – as an editor and as a pundit, people send me unsolicited material for, like, magazine articles or just to read their theories of things that are, you know, 19 pages single spaced that start off, you know, so strange and so weird that you just throw them away, right? Yeah. And part of the problem is, that is there's this there, – there becomes this bias at these institutions, it seems to me, that – there may be the stray silver bullet that's going to come in, but it's not worth looking through the haystack, right? So part of the function of the agent is to look through the haystack right I mean, you're sort of yeah. the first line of defense and not to be pejorative, but you're kind of the garbage filter for a lot of the publishers, right?
0: For sure, yeah, no question. you know, I think i I would say even to some degree you are you're creating your own filter system, right. Uh, in, in the garbage dump, um, you are you no, know so you must get crazy
1: stuff that comes in all the time. Yeah, you
0: know, there's like, the I mean, I, uh, every letter agent has their story of the uh, I decoded the Bible, right? You know, kind of inquiry.
1: I've I, I've I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna name names and blow the lid off the upholstery business. You know, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that stuff.
0: Yeah, and it's pretty easy to spot, it and it can be kind of. It can be kind of fun to sift through sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, the reality is that there, you you do it long enough, and hopefully, ideally, your kind of your sixth sense improves, right. right? So, it's a funny thing. I think people forget it a lot, but when you're in the when you're in the business of promoting uh, and positioning writers the writing that people send you to ask you to read their writing is in fact also writing right right right, right. So so thinking hard about how you're actually articulating your work and what tone you're uh, setting in that work and what critical facts you want to present to agents is it's crucial. yeah it's when people have limited time they just they're, they're working their way through it and all they really want are a few signals of potential promise. And agents are you know, kind of by definition, they're optimists. It's a crazy thing to be doing, right. both in terms of the volume you have to manage and the insanity of trying to think you can make a living in book publishing. And so as a result, they, they want to be impressed, but they also need to be. Right. So, you know, I don't need to know that your manuscript is 43,272 words, right? right, right, right. So there are, there are like kind of the classic mistakes that happen. Boiling something down to an essence is kind of crucial. Right. The simplest thing and the easiest piece of advice I, I I give people on you know agents agents tell crowds of writers this all the time. And I'm surprised at how seldom it gets utilized is just work those acknowledgement sections of pre-existing books. If you want to be a writer, you're going to have to be a reader. And if you're a reader or you're staring at a pile of books in your on your own desk and you're you presumably like some of those books, and those books are written by people who have agents, find out who the agents are, right. And agents, like everybody else, have egos. And if you tell them how impressed you are with their ability to actually position somebody like Jonah Goldberg in the marketplace, they will m- maybe feel slightly warmer feelings toward you <laughs> than, they, <laughs> than they otherwise might.
1: Um, so just to clear things up, the world of f- fiction is is, it, is having an agent more crucial, less it, crucial? It,
0: well, so there, there are two ways to think about, about it. I mean... The the fascinating thing about fiction, the thing that's always been fascinating to me is the bolt of lightning out of nowhere proposition, which is much more realistic in fiction. Right. There are... The Fifty si-
1: Shades of Grey. Yeah.
0: Of. I mean, really, you know, country lawyer, John Grisham, that kind of stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Twilight. Twilight, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that allows agents to be a lot more open-minded about what might come in and right. how to go about finding it. You know, it doesn't mean that there aren't signals being sent. It doesn't mean that there's infrastructure in place. And that infrastructure is probably a little more important the more literary the work gets. right? Some people might call that a certain degree of snobbish coding, mm-hmm. but there is kind of, I, I think, meaningful and justifiable credibility enhancement that comes with literary journal publishing, um, MFA programs, fellowship work. But on the more commercial end of the spectrum, you know, sometimes people have good ideas, they read a lot, they write a really good novel, and they... They become overnight successes. It does yeah. happen.
1: Yeah, it seems that definitely happen far more in fiction than it does in nonfiction. And I think it's probably because of the stuff you're talking about. Institutional arrangements are just different, right?
0: Yeah, and I think you're you you have to you can think about your world, right? People, if if you're it, if you want to read political analysis, you want to read that inside a certain context. You want that person to have credibility. You'd like to have some understanding as to how they actually built their set of ideas. Right. The same thing obviously would go for for popular history. I mean in some ways the the one exception is the thing that functions most like fiction, which would be memoir, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that has its own literary component to it. But there are people who have crazy stories who – emerge to some degree a bit out of nowhere right? Um, because they've written that story in the right compelling way. Um, but yeah, it's a lot rarer on the nonfiction side.
1: Um, so is... Well, I'll back up before we get to the, this stuff. So my old boss, Ben Wattenberg, he used to say that they should... Um, they should rename publishing privishing because the some of the publishing houses are, do everything they can to keep the public from getting the book.
0: <laughs> right. and. Um, I'm
1: sure you've never heard complaints about publishers before.
0: No. I'm married to a publisher, so I actually am a little more sensitive to it than other people.
1: One of the standard complaints, and I I I for sure think this has changed, but one of the standard complaints about publishing in the old days was that the high WASP East Coast elite had to do something – with their less entrepreneurial second son English major kids, that would save face, right? And so they s- sent them into publishing where they would work f- four-day weeks. I mean the, the – the, <laughs> Some the,
0: of us still work four-day weeks. You know, uh, well, look, I got to tell you, like, I
1: mean publishing, publishing was one of the last major industries in this country that made the switch to accepting things in digital format. Yeah. I mean I remember my mom would still have to print out whole books – when, like, everyone else was already, like, sending discs or, and all that kind of stuff. And there has always been this kind of, sort of like what the newsweeklies like Time and Newsweek, were like, you know, they lasted with these incredibly lavish expense accounts and stuff well into the 90s before someone said, hey, no, this model is not sustainable. It seems to me like that's kind of all gone by the wayside. But maybe there's, like, in the coffee table book world, there's still a little of that, this sort of, like. It's not so much a business as a lifestyle thing. Yeah, am I am I am I completely off base here? Do you not know what I mean?
0: No, I mean I I would say that when I came into the business, it was sort of the the last, last days. gasp of the kind of three martini lunch yeah. high wasp yeah side of the business. And yet you know, I mean, achiever anecdotes that yeah, kind of thing. <laughs> it, it seemed to manage to find find a way to survive. I mean, it, it is it was a, obviously a more traditional business than that. Probably required a little bit less. Maybe it required a little bit less scrutiny and diligence, and kind of puttered along in a way that, that worked effectively. Right. You know, the the real change in media in the in the age of the internet, I guess, is just how much media there is. Right. right. So part of what happens is just the natural outgrowth of needing to hyper professionalize when you have so much competition for people's attention. Right. Um, and why that personal brand thing matters so much. Yeah. Right? And it is, you know, these well part of what was happening toward the end of that era is that these these companies started to conglomeratize and corporatize. And at that point, you know, your ability your your need to actually professionalize is unavoidable because someone's staring at your numbers harder. Right. Right. Um I you know, I, I would also say that you have you have a strange model in our business that maybe you provided a certain degree of accidental success. Um, as we, we, we did a couple of things as an industry really right. Maybe we stumbled into them, but, but I think we did do them. One, uh, never uh, creating an advertising model for the business, I think, was really helpful. I mm-hmm. think there's always been um, a need to actually build out a product that consumers want, mm-hmm. and that is good enough, and substantive enough and differentiated enough from other forms of media that people will pay for it. Yeah, And that, I think, disallowed the kind of disruption that happened in the magazine and newspaper business from yeah. happening in our business. At You know, as complicated and um, imperfect as it might be, it was still kind of a functioning business. It never really stopped being one. Right. Um, we also had – there was a lot of paranoia and suspicion around the transition to digital mm-hmm. in our business. Um, and I you know there there's there are many books to be written about, you know why it took so long for the ebook revolution to happen, but and and how it went about happening. But by the time it did, uh there was a model in place that allowed for people to get um legitimate files really easily and happily. Mm-hmm. And it was also they were being delivered to a slightly older demographic than. Uh, the kids using Napster, right, 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 and so what that meant was you had a transition that actually ended up reducing the cost of goods, expanding the marketplace, you know, expanding availability, intensifying retail in a certain sense, and being a being less traumatizing than the digital transition was for a lot of other media businesses, like music, like, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, so I think what that meant was that we're this weird, quirky kind of. Uh, Highly singular business that isn't exactly mass media. It gets misperceived as mass media. It's right. sort of niche media, cult media. But its death is like basically greatly exaggerated every year.
1: All right. So let's 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 go back on that a little bit. I'm not gonna hold you to hard numbers, but just sort of ballpark kind of thing. How many books are bought in dead tree version versus digital these days?
0: Well, uh, my metrics are going to be imperfect. What I what what I can tell you is that's that's interesting. Maybe interesting about that for people who aren't that familiar with the business is that the fascinating part of the development of the ebook is that it plateaued. Mm-hmm. Um, that you saw this uh, massive irreversible spike in digitization of music, and you're seeing it. You know, you're sort of this the DVD the DVD business has whatever a week or two left of right, right, viability, right? right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's just never going to happen to the physical book. Mm. It's the the the, you know the jury is in on that, and I think it is
1: interesting that the bookstore died, but the book didn't.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. And I mean, and and really, it wasn't the book wasn't the problem. The, The complications of a bricks and mortar business was the problem. Right. Right. But you know, the numbers are different for different genres. So, commercial fiction, oftentimes, particularly at the phenomenon level um girl on girl on a train, gone girl kind of book. Mm-hmm. Um it can sometimes get up to the 70, 80% digital market share. Really? Okay. But it can drop well below 50% for some titles and it tends to tends to be lower for nonfiction. Uh-huh. You know, the the ebook marketplaces has rapidly professionalized. The files are are pretty dependable. They're they're obviously a little more adaptable. Right. Um their availability is super widespread. But not everyone wants to do it, right. and actually, in a, in a funny way, as uh, dedicated ebook readers like a you know black and white Kindle, as that business seems to be dying out, there's there, ironically, there's now a greater distinction between the experience people have reading on their tablets and their phones than reading on a physical book. I think that there's been I, I'm not sure I have proof for this, but I think there's been a little bit of a physical reinvigoration because. You're staring at a kind of a luminescent screen, and uh, a dedicated ebook reader really wasn't that way. And a book.
1: So the Kindle's dying out. I did not realize it.
0: It is shrinking. Yeah. Right? So I think what Amazon would tell you is that there is a, a deeply devoted following of people who read all their books on those readers, uh-huh. but I'm not totally sure it's growing. Yeah. Um, and I think what people, as there is, as kind of phone addiction becomes near universal, I think people see the physical book experience as a timeout yeah, in a way that is decompressing. It allows them to kind of reconnect with this idea of, like, exercising your long twitch intellectual muscles, you know, feeling like you can recapture your attention span. You can dive deeply into a story in a right. way that you sort of do when you're, you know, binge watching Homeland or whatever. Right. But – uh, isn't quite the same. Yeah,
1: yeah. How is How are audiobooks doing?
0: The audiobook business
1: see, seems to be booming. Do you think it's tied to this incredibly glorious thing called podcasting?
0: I think people have refamiliarized themselves with the idea of deep-dive audio listening. I think yeah. that's definitely a part of it. Uh, you know, the obvious reason for it is audiobooks are great, and they were a pain. Yeah. Right? You had they it, it, if you have 10 hours of audio on 5 CDs or whatever yeah. it was. It's like that wasn't a lot of fun and you'd yeah. always lose disc 3 yeah, and then yeah. you know what I mean? And so ready availability has been a, a bit of a revolution for that business and I think has been uh, hugely encouraging for the industry. You know the the I think the major publishers have gotten savvy about hyper professionalizing the way they record uh, the level of production, the the availability. It used to be that you'd get an audio deal, uh-huh. you know, I don't know, on half your books. Everything is getting recorded now. They've been – you know, they've been uh, – the publishers have been much more insistent about retaining those rights when they're buying publishing rights. Right. Um, but they – understandably, they see big growth there and hope – you know, there's a hope that, that it, it's going to be a really meaningful thing for the – the industry, authors, agents, publishers, all of us. Okay,
1: so um, I'm going someplace with this, and it's not a personal grievance. I swear. Um, I'm not saying it's there isn't one attached to it, but this. Is, so, the the average hardcover book when it comes out. Yeah. Right. First of all, what is the average advance that that an that an author gets? Right.
0: Well, I'm gonna. That's a tough one. No, I know it. But is, right? let's let's say that it's we're talking about a major corporate publisher. Yeah. You know, the, they they range pretty broadly. Um, there, I, I would say there there aren't too many. I, I would think that most of the books on those big five corporate publishers lists are uh, the vast majority of those deals are at least six figure deals. Okay,
1: so I mean, I, I guess we should explain for listeners in advance. In theory, is the money the publisher fronts you for a book to help you defray the costs and in- Ha- cha- deal with the challenges of actually writing the book. That's what its, it's original route was, right? You right. take some time off, you need some money to take some time off, here's the book, and then... Go write the book. Go write the book, and then the publisher holds on to all of the royal, all the revenues of the book until you quote-unquote earn back the advance. Right? Correct. So I think like the average academic publisher advance is probably like five grand? Ten grand? It's tiny by yeah. comparison, yeah. But then again, the universities want you to write books, so... The incentive structure is different, right? And so, for a big corporate publisher, what sh- the average book price is? What twenty seven
0: bucks somewhere? Something there? like that, yeah. Okay,
1: how much does the author make from those sales? Hardcover.
0: So, I you know, it,
1: I swear I'm not going to take out my royalty statement. It is very. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was not a math major. I understand. Um,
1: my I, recollection was about f- when my first book came up. It was about four bucks per book for hardcover and a buck per book yeah, for paperback. Yeah, yes,
0: yeah. So that's roughly speaking, that's accurate, right? Okay. So the the there are uh, there are lots of ways to skin the cat, but the the typical adult trade major publisher deal is escalates to fifteen percent pretty quickly on a hardcover, mm-hmm. um, and is a seven and a half percent royalty on trade paperback, which is the typical paperback nowadays. Okay. So if you did the math, that's off of suggested retail price, right? So you right. do the math, that gets you to close to four bucks, and close to you know a little over a dollar right. on the paperback. And then the the ebook stuff is a little bit more complicated, but roughly tracks to whatever the prevailing edition is.
1: Right. So so I mean, correct my math if I'm wrong. Say you had a just for the sake of the math, a hundred thousand dollar advance. You would need to sell how many? Let's call,
0: it, let's call it – let's call it 25,000, 30,000 hardcovers, right. something like that, right? Right,
1: So – and – so here's my problem, uh, my grievance. Yes. Uh, as a generic proposition. It seems to me historically the role the publishers play, right, is they know how to do something, this value-add thing that I, I literally don't know how to do. Yeah, they know how to take dead trees, and some glue, and some ink, and make a book, right? And then they know how to get it in thousands of bookstores all across the country, right? True.
0: They more often than not, yeah. Okay, they fail I mean, even I mean, at that. that, that but that's, yeah,
1: that's, that's what that was the value. It I you know a, a author would come and bring a sheaf of papers with typewritten pages on it, and after some Presto, changeo, abracadabra stuff. You'd get a book, right? Yeah. And then they would know how to distribute this book all around the country. I don't know how to do that. I do know how to send ones and zeros through space. Yes, right? you, do, you can do that. <laughs> and yet, it seems to me. So, what? 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 One of my gripes is. And look, it's all sour grapes. I'm in a. I'm in a fortunate position, but one of my sour grapes is is that the publisher. On the ebook side, really is just a grasping middleman and not actually a value adder. Tell me why I'm wrong about that? Because I you actually make less money on the ebooks. Yeah, because they charge less, right? For one thing.
0: Yeah, you you end up doing a little wor- uh, if memory serves a little worse on on hardcover when that's prevailing, a little better on when paperback's prevailing. Uh huh the answer is you might be right <laughs> <laughs> um, the reality is that there's been a, a you know we've settled into a kind of an industry standard on royalties in that category that there's been a lot of controversy over right that people feel you know a lot of agents feel is unfair that that kind of through a certain amount of uh, passivity and confusion about how the the uh, business was going to evolve, went to a place that maybe it shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Now, the book business is complicated, right? So while all this is happening, Borders is going bankrupt, right? Barnes and Noble is currently, I think, fair to characterize as pretty vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been obviously massive disruption and uh, the media expansion, which makes it really difficult to get attention. And uh, and this is the the dirty little secret here. Uh, a lot that I, I'm as an agent, I'm I'm probably betraying my community of agents even saying, but you know there are a lot of unearned advances out there mm-hmm. um, on the on the rosters and in the write-offs of the major publishers, mm-hmm. and so I, I think we to some degree there's a sort of quiet understanding that that we sometimes experience we in the agent slash author community get to experience a lot of perhaps illegitimate upside in failure, Mm -hmm. and maybe we get hammered somewhat in success, right? Right, Right. And that there may be a kind of an uneasy agreement that we're, both sides are kind of gambling whenever you make one of these deals. Right. And you're sort of agreeing that we're, you're not going to claw back any money from me, I'm not going to claw back any money from you, and what we really need to do is try to hold hands and fundamentally make this business work. right? Now, I've been in situations where, People with either with outrageously prominent brands or uh, bank accounts have gotten really comfortable with the idea of radically reducing their advance number and/or eliminating it and entering into a, a joint venture with a publisher and getting a, getting tons of transparency mm-hmm. and and that can be incredibly exciting and lucrative. I mean, the, what
1: do you mean by that? Like basically. Don't give me advance, but I start making money dollar one with the book. Yeah, and yeah. like we're
0: basically 50-50 partners, uh-huh. right? Now, the trick of that is just like anytime you're licensing to a publisher that's taking financial risk, you know, it can be fun and, and a different kind of experience, but uh, you then get to sort of shoulder some of that risk. Not necessarily on the downside, but, you know, you were really comfortable flying business class Right. when it was an advance against royalties, and all of a sudden it ends up on your ledger, right? Mm-hmm. You were really, really insistent on getting that full-page, four-color ad in the New York Times Book Review, but it looks a little different when actually you have a profit and loss statement you're managing. Mm-hmm. So it's book publishing is hard, yeah. you know? And so people play around with models and th- and think hard about, about ha- in what context they'll be most comfortable, and... Uh, agents and editors wrangle, and we all sort of do the best we can. Right. The you know there is a whole community. We didn't get to talk about this, but on the fiction end of things, there's there there's a uh, I, I think a vocal uh, and passionate community of people who feel that self-publishing has revealed to them the deep-seated corruption of the both the agenting community and the publishers. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I can see it. And and I you know I think what what. The truth of the matter is that for some people they've actually built really intensive direct connections to their consumers and God bless. Right. You know, that model doesn't work for everyone. It doesn't work for every genre. It's It, it can sometimes work for authors sometimes but not all the time and they can have bifurcated v- businesses. I'm not in that business. Right. No, I get you that. Know? I get it.
1: Just my, my, my view is like so a book is this thing that comes out of – the author's head, sort of like, so it's like, it's sort of like the difference between the soul and the body. Yeah, and it used to be that the publisher provided a body for the soul. Yeah, e-books are just like the pure soul, and yet the author gets so much less for that. When it seems to me, as an economic proposition, they should get a lot more.
0: Yeah, well, so it, it introduces a couple of interesting ideas. One is the the re, you know the relentless ongoing existence of the physical book. Right. And the trick of actually having to maintain two different separate retail channels sure. simultaneously—that's a challenge for publishers and something you have to manage. It doesn't necessarily justify that royalty structure, but it's, you know sure. this is a this may be a fight that happens for the next century. The other thing is, just as an enterprise, I think publishers and to have have to varying degrees succeeded or failed at this, but they have had to become much savvier publicity and marketing machines than mm. they once were. Their job is different, and it has to be different. And I think there was a time when they could pat themselves on the back for elegant streamlined distribution, and maybe not that much else. Yeah, um, editorial and, and you know, kind of a, a more casual approach to the other components of getting a book out into the world. It just can't work that way anymore. Mm-hmm. Back to the back to the competition in the media landscape, like their competition with each other. They just have to be a lot savvier about how to how to make noise.
1: All right. So, uh, changing gears slightly, how um. How many people buy books to have them versus read them, and how much of that is part of the the, the going into the marketing of it? Um. I don't want to cast aspersions on some people, but,
0: I mean, the famous example
1: of this was was Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time. Yeah. Was yeah. The, was the most purchased and yet most unread book, you know. You can make the same case about Closing of the American Mind. Right. Uh, you know, I I read half of that book pretty closely. <laughs> I really did. There's an old debate, it's sort of yeah. like in the movie Stripes, I've written about this before. There's an argument about when Stripes stop being funny. Is it when they're like in Italy and they're arguing about the top bunk or is it whatever? There's a point where the where Alan Bloom starts talking about the Nietzscheification of the left, and you're like, "All right, I'm done." Right, you know? right, um, right. But a lot of, there are a lot of books that people feel like they have to have that they don't end up buying.
0: Yeah, it exists. It clearly exists. Yeah, but you, you don't know? have a
1: sense of like a rule of thumb about it or anything like that. It's a
0: funny thing because I think there is a way, in, in particular, I think in Amazon's um, uh, subscription service there, and maybe actually even in the, your con, their conventional retail business. Uh-huh. They actually know. Yeah, I'm not sure they would tell us, but right. that would probably give us a pretty clear sense of things. You know, I think. Of, I think there is a certain amount of like what I think of in my head as like souveniring, um, <clears throat> but it's a little bit unavoidable. I mean, I think actually the the and there are certain books. On Capital, I guess, is kind of Uh
1: like, yeah, the Piketty book. Yeah. I reviewed that thing. There's no way. Yeah,
0: people weren't reading that book, right?
1: People didn't skip at least hundreds of pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guarantee you.
0: Um,
1: So I'm not, I'll tell you a story. And I I hope this is not too out of school. But uh, uh, I once, you know, I used to be friends with Andrew Sullivan. We were on set together. (laughs) He had a book coming out. Uh, The book was actually a source of a falling out that we had Uh because he didn't like my review of it. But he told me this horrifying story where because of a pu- a printing error the second half of chapter 7 was transposed with the f- second half of chapter 6 or vice versa and the reason no one caught it was that the actual sentence sentence that linked the two pages just happened to work right totally by coincidence oh, my god that's And amazing. so he was he was uh, horrified yeah. livid i don't blame him the slightest yeah. and he said that he had this you know, a screaming match with this publisher, where the publisher says, well, hey, we're not going to recall it. And he says, What are you talking about? You have to recall it. And he says, Well, we know it it's not in all the books. And he was like, How many of the books? And he says, Um the the publisher said, less than 50%, or oh, something like that. Right. And um, and Andrew's response totally justifiable. Well, less than 50% could mean 49% or 1%, right? <laughs> and part of the answer he got, allegedly, um, was that people don't people buy books to have them don't necessarily read them all the way through. They read the introduction, they read the conclusion, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know that kind of thing. And I, I mean I do think there's a lot of that going on out there. Frankly, I think there are a lot of reviewers who don't read the books yeah. either, you know.
0: Well, look, it obviously is a, is an experience that takes a lot more discipline and is incredibly difficult to do given the circumstances of the people who are supposed to be doing it. People who are kind of not in school cuz right. cuz kids have their have have their school reading to do um and probably oftentimes in the heart of their career and their adulthood and their child rearing and it, it is it's a huge challenge
1: right and it's not like novels where once you commit to reading if you like the first couple yeah. chapters you want to see how it ends right yeah. but there are a lot of books you know including mine where you could read a couple chapters in the beginning and a couple chapters at the end and okay i get it you know
0: yeah i mean i think that the the what i will say and this isn't true of every book and every argument uh it wasn't true of Suicide of the West. Uh-huh. I, I think there's been a push toward the shorter book, sure. And I think it's—I I think what people want is they want people to come away with that passionate, highly advocating uh, word-of-mouth intensity that comes from having finished something. Right, right. And right. you're a lot more likely to finish something that's sixty thousand words than something that's a hundred thousand words. Right, right. Um, and some of this also comes back to the digital addiction stuff and. People actually, genuinely, clearly seeming to have shorter attention spans, and we're kind of adjusting. And an interesting piece of that is that part of what we're doing as a business, I think, is fulfilling that gap, filling in that gap that comes from the increasing dearth of of long form journalism. Mm-hmm. People don't have as many places to go. There aren't as many magazines thriving, and. Part of what that means is that you can look a little bit more like long-form journalism. You don't necessarily have to look like old-school doorstopper book publishing.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a good thing. Um,
0: But yeah, it happens.
1: um, All right. So can you explain – and this is almost entirely for the authors out there and I know so many of them who get almost horribly addicted to their Amazon sales rank. yeah. Uh, Um, The advice you gave me, which I think is the right advice, and the advice I give to other people is uh, twofold. One is it's useful to give you a sense of momentum. Yeah. And it's only truly important basically the first 48 hours after publication.
0: Yeah, roughly speaking, that was like actually accurate and not manipulative advice I gave to you. Um, I think it was. Um, Yeah, it's – you know, it is – you see intensely shifting numbers because – um, something's happening, right? Right. And it can be really difficult to determine, especially because Amazon's not going to tell you, how many copies are actually creating that shift. Right. But clearly some are, right? Right. And it gives you an opportunity to see if things you're doing, press you're doing, is is uh, promotion you're getting is actually working.
1: Right. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people who are fans of books or have written books, they say, oh, my gosh, I moved from – a rank of five hundred and twelve thousand to a rank of of eighteen hundred. Right. And that could be literally like fifty books. Yeah, it's probably less. Yeah.
0: Sadly. No, I would say once you get from once you get roughly speaking, probably from ten thousand downward, just ignore it entirely. It's hard to know what it means. You know, there is a a, I mean
1: if you're in the top one hundred, that means something.
0: It's a high degree of intensity there. Yeah. Yeah. You are either a book with a ton of uh, ongoing momentum or you're doing a lot of press and people are paying attention and it's converting to sales.
1: And is the sales rank – because some people have told me that the traffic to the page affects the rank, not necessarily purely sales. Do you have any idea if that's true?
0: I don't know that to be true. Yeah. That may be a little little bit of a gap in my knowledge of what they're doing, but that hasn't been my experience.
1: Okay. And what is your best guess – of the the mysterious forbidden algorithm of how the New York Times bestseller list works. (sighs) Well, First of all, we should tell listeners that one of the things is a broad proposition um, that in a given week, you're going to be a number one New York Times bestseller if you sold 1,000 copies and the next biggest seller sells 850 copies for that week. But you can also be at a number two New York Times – I'll put it this way. With liberal fascism, uh, the week I hit number one, I think I sold 12,000 copies. The following week, I sold 14,000 copies. But I fell to two because Valerie Bertinelli came out with her (laughs) lesbian kissing (laughs) diet book, rock and roll tell-all book that was given away on Oprah and was a premium for Weight Washers. And it sold like fifty-eight thousand copies that week, right? So I gained, but not nearly, you know, nothing like what she did. And so I never hit one again after that week, even though my sales improved. I didn't remember that. About oh my Valerie gosh, Bird I'm Noni. so bitter, and I and I had such a crush on Valerie Burton. Yeah, one day at a time. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, right? Her. Yeah. Um, yeah. And. Uh, God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, but yeah. But my point is, is that it's all on a curve in a broad yeah. sense of it, right?
0: Well, look, it's a, obviously it's incredible branding uh, by the by the book people over at the paper and it it is you know many 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 decades long preoccupation both the business and, and authors and the public has right with that list um, it's complicated and in a funny way the, the, you know people have all sorts of conspiracies built into their perception of how it works they are they have a particular and eccentric approach as far as we can tell and unlike a place like Amazon and it's hard to know how real Amazon's list is, but they are not a retailer counting up sales. Mm-hmm. They are—they have decided to create a consortium of stores that report to them, and they count up those sales. And what happens backstage hasn't always been clear to people, um, and that's complicated things. Uh, you know, they I, I think it may be that Nielsen Bookscan, um, which is a, Nielsen owned service that right. provides its own set of data and gives people raw numbers that are not complete, but they are at least apples with apples, mm-hmm. um, has has allowed the industry to keep the times a little bit more honest. But the truth of the matter is, they, they've developed the list the way they've chosen to develop the list, and there is always going to be a certain amount of mystery to it. And there is always going to be, given the fact that it, it, it's a sampling based on particular retailers, there's always going to be a limited amount of accuracy available to them. Right. Where things can sometimes get a little funky is when they're. They, it appears they may be making special accounting for for how those sales are happening. Right. Mm-hmm. I think they are trying to avoid people gaming the system.
1: Right. And that's um, how I got screwed with my second book, um, where I think I outsold everybody but the top nine. Right. And so I should have been 10, and I think I was, like, 18 right. because National Review for a premium giveaway thing had bought, like, 1,000 copies. Yeah. And um, and I think AI had bought, like, 500 for to give out the donors or whatever, or and they punished that as bulk sales. And, yeah. And, and so I got kind of screwed on that. I mean, I understand the AI part of it, but the NR thing annoyed me because these were basically sales that were going to be done just sort of through the channel of our direct relationship with our readers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that was the one that ding me and pissed me off.
0: It's frustrating, and it's uh, it's hard to know how to manage it. I I, I think it is it involves. I I mostly try to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. You know, I think they're tr- they're they're trying to manage an imperfect system. Um, and people t- do
1: try to game it. I mean,
0: there there's no question they do. Yeah. yeah. And it, you know, uh, in pretty ugly ways, and in ways that misrepresent the popularity of the books. Right. So they're pushing back against that, and. It is not an easy job to manage. And what they're really trying to do, I think, is give their readers um, a snapshot of what the business looks like. Right. Now, unfortunately, when you hold that much power, the problem is that that snapshot can have very real implications for the for the people on or off the list. Right. It's a tough thing to, to deal with. You know, where the conservative piece of it specifically is concerned, you know, it just hasn't been my personal experience that, um, there is some sort of conspiracy in place. I think if you if you look at the list pretty hard over over recent years, you'll find a lot of a lot of books right of center on that list, sure. and
1: including scholars like Janine Piero, including
0: <laughs> including, <laughs> including the judge. Um, I'm sorry, is she a client? Uh, she is not. <laughs> she once was, I believe. Um, but yes, she I think now writing as of. The list that's coming out a week from Sunday at number one, I believe. Yeah,
1: I know she hit one at one point. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, that's why I started cutting myself again.
0: So <laughs> 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 um, yeah, that's a whole other conversation. But you know, I think that they're they have an interest in keeping the list a little bit unpredictable, mm-hmm. right? So I think there may be books that have that have slipped on or slid off. And maybe they are doing their own gaming to, mm-hmm. to try to keep it interesting. I don't know. There's really no way to know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think mostly what they're trying to do is actually reflect the retail business itself.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think that's generally right. Um, you know, it's sort of like when you buy a house, all of a sudden you become an expert on interest rates. Whenever a book comes out, I pay very close attention and I ask for the book yeah. scan numbers and all that kind of stuff. And I still, I don't really even begrudge them about the stuff with my second book. Um, because I do understand – I mean, look, look, if I were a billionaire and I wrote some vanity book, why wouldn't you just get a dozen interns to scour the country with if – you're, if, you're yeah. if, if you're not putting out the book for, to make money, right? I mean, why, right. you want to have impact. You want to have speeches. You want it as a, on your CV. Why wouldn't you game the system other than integrity and honor and all of the rest, right? Yeah. I mean, it would be so easy to do because I don't think people really appreciate how few books you have to sell – to actually get on these lists, right? I mean,
0: um, no, it's true. It's it it, it it in theory, it can be manipulated, and they want to try to keep some integrity intact. I would say the thing that doesn't exist there, uh, or really most any place that that attempts to track sales, is the are, are the real remarkable long tail successes, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes you'll see books that are are parked on a list for a year or two. But like there are, Jeanette Walls's, member, what was it? Yeah, uh, Glass Castle, right? Plus, yeah, yeah. But there are also books that slip off that list, but then sell and sell mm-hmm. and sell and sell, and in some ways, those can be a really sturdy, a sturdier reflection of people's taste mm-hmm. and their passion for a book than the bestseller list. Right. But it's a little a little harder to track because it's so word of mouth based and sort right. of flying just under the radar. Yeah, that's
1: that's what we're going for with uh, Suicide of the West.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, all right, so uh, before I get to my own personal grievances um, yeah. or my further personal grievances on the on the Amazon sales rank thing right so it was funny when when my book came out, I noticed that so in on the hardcover I was doing well in in the, in audiobook the rank made sense but so like I was let's put it this way I was like in hardcover, Let's say, I think I got as high as six, and say I was around 15, right? Mm-hmm. Its ranking in Kindle was like 1700. Uh huh. And um,
0: it's because people feel such strong attachment to you, they need an embodiment. Of the book, see, this is not—they're not, not going to accept it. No, I don't think that's it. it. I don't think and that's they it. They might stumble into you on the street at some point, and they'll break out their. Yeah, I don't think their that's sparkle it. Pen. So,
1: one of the guys at my publishing house, their explanation was that there is so much penny Kindle stuff mm-hmm. or free download stuff mm-hmm. that the ranking includes that stuff, and so you know, I mean, there's a topic I've talked about quite a bit on show, the show—the phenomenon of things like Bigfoot erotica. Right, right which are just in like they're 99 cents on the Kindle and that kind of stuff because it's so cheap just well, distorts there, the sales yeah the, well there are right. two
0: things going on there's the there there is the kind of the what you might think of as down market um genre fiction right um and a, and a lot of self-published fiction that prices itself very low to try to acquire readers build audience um and then there's a flash sale business so there's plenty of quote-unquote upmarket stuff that, you know, tries to reinvigorate uh, the life of the book by uh, going on sale at a low price for a limited period of time deep into the book's backlist life. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's I mean, that's a big part of the explanation, right? Um, And some of it has to do with with categories and the way people read and the way they want to read you.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, so um – How important are our um, book reviews, well, particularly like prestige book reviews? Right. I mean, um,
0: I think there's a there are some pivotal book reviews and reviewers that uh, can really make a, a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, the there are people bemoan the the erosion of the book review universe. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's been hard to keep it intact with. Um, the thinning and the disappearing of some uh, regional newspapers. Um, But the bigger papers can have a ton of influence. And I think back to the Times, I think the Times has done a particularly good job of thinking tactically about how to integrate their book coverage into every part of the paper Mm -hmm. and not to get too overly focused on the Times book review, which is a wonderful thing to my mind, but a kind of a little bit old-fashioned for some readers who yeah. may not even get the physical paper. Yeah. Um, the the I, I would say that the extreme rave in a prestigious outlet can have a very major impact. Still, yeah. but what I think when you're trying to build out um, a publicity launch for a major publication, you know what people always say. I really believe it to be true. Is it's the and be interested to know what your listeners and readers think is that it is the third or the fourth or the fifth time you hear about a book that you think, oh, i got to go buy it. It is – you've seen the excerpt in National Review. You've heard the NPR thing. You saw the hit on Fox or MSNBC. And then you think, okay, this is – it's time to buy this book. Or you even kind of more forcefully register the mere fact of the book's existence. And that can be combined with a review and um, may happen without that review even happening. It's just – it is – Everywhere, all at once, um, particularly in like politically themed nonfiction, seems to be the way you're really going to get people's attention.
1: Yeah. So, I, and this is a grievance, fully stipulated.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: am I am used to getting negative reviews in places like the New York Times. Mm-hmm. You know, um, of all the books that I've well, all the books I've written, three books. Right. So my first book, which much to the chagrin of many people, actually was much more positively reviewed. In the New York Times, than people seem to think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy, this guy Oshinsky, I think from the University of Texas, basically didn't have a negative word to say about my book until he got to the New Deal, which is like, okay, so if you don't like my treatment of FDR, you, you've already conceded that there's something legitimate in the argument I right. made about you know Hitler, Wilson, and and Mussolini, whatever. But that's beside the point. Um, I expected to get a negative review there, and the review of my second book was pretty asinine by Joe Klein. It pissed me off because I thought it was intellectually dishonest. Uh But the Times didn't review this book at all, right? And so one of the things, and we've talked about this, one of the things I'm trying to do, and I'm not trying to preen, I'm not trying to lecture or finger wag people, right, is that I I, I'm trying to put away some of the childish things of my younger days in this business, right, And, and actually try to model some of the behavior that I think, is so lacking on the right, um, which is to actually, like, not go in for all of this their tears are delicious stuff, yeah. right? And actually try to appeal in good faith and persuade people in good faith, right? And that's what a big chunk of this book is, and I'm, you know, and so what we hear all the time is why won't conservatives, A, stand up to Trump? Why won't conservatives, you know, stand on principle? Why are they giving in to all this tribalism and all this kind of stuff? And here, I finally write a book that is you know I may not stand up to Trump as much as they would like right you know I mean I'm not setting myself on fire yeah. but I'm pretty critical yeah. and and I'm working in good faith and I'm trying to engage the left in good faith and eschew or repudiate a lot of the asinine tribalism that's taking over the right and the Washington Post doesn't review it the New York Times doesn't review it and the Wall Street Journal is a different animal, right? right? There, I, I suspect that part of the reason they didn't review it is precisely because I'm doing the things that the New York Times and the Washington Post should be praising, right? right? Because right. they've gotten pretty Trumpy over there. Yeah. And, um, uh, and they've never treated me well for reasons that are very strange to me. But these are, all, I mean, as you know, authors can inflate the importance of these issues beyond objective criteria. So I'm fully aware of that. But
0: um, it still strikes me as odd. I think it is odd. I mean, I think sometimes what can happen is they can't figure out – and you hear this sometimes. They, they can't figure out exactly how to position their own feelings about a book. Uh-huh. Uh, and the assignments can sometimes go awry. Yeah. Right? So when you dig deeply into the backstory, a lot of times you'll hear about not a review coming in badly for the book – but the review itself actually being bad. Being bad. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. No, I can see that. Look, I mean, I work at National Review for twenty years. These things happen.
0: Yeah. You know. But I I I do I mean, it is one of the great challenges of of the political end of this business to try to find a way where you can have uh journalistic outlets who obviously have their own point of view, but have to review material on its on its own terms and merit, right? right. Like, you know, you have to it I find myself Eternally, really frustrated with the preaching to the choir aspect of the political mm-hmm. realm of book publishing. It's we we don't we're not really serving anyone if the uh, if part of the mission is not just to entertain but also to educate people, the trigger of thought and contemplation about where where the society is living. People have to be reading material that's different than their own point of view, right? And that, to some degree. That material has to get steered to them, and who better to st- to, to steer people to a, a, a different position than uh, a publication that doesn't share the position of the author, right? Right. So, I think it's I think it's a real challenge. I mean, I think sometimes what what you see is that the major outlets aren't quite as good at finding the pool of reviewers they need to mm-hmm. to master the art of of finding the right perspective on these books. To figuring out what's what's important enough to justify a broad readership to a readership that's outside its own yeah. uh, ideological origins, you know, it's hard. Yeah, it's no. Look, hard. I
1: mean, and I mentioned Andrew Sullivan earlier, and I, you know, we still had some pretty profound disagreements, so I can't remember all of them anymore. Yeah. But I I have much more sympathy for what Andrew was doing ten years ago than I did at the time, because it turns out that when you even take a quarter turn against the tide of the crowd that you've been going with. It's really easy to get trampled yeah. and get caught in the switches. And And the other crowd doesn't know what to do with you and is not particularly incentivized to come get you unless you do something like what Max Boot does. And it basically says, I'm essentially repudiating all of the things or what Jen Rubin has done where they basically say – because I don't like Trump, I no longer believe in low taxes. Because I don't like <laughs> Trump, I now think that affirmative action is great. Right. And I'm not prepared to do that. But at yeah. the same time, I'm not willing to say that Comrade Trump is going to deliver the greatest wheat harvests we've ever had east of the Urals. You know, I mean, right. I'm not going to do that stuff either. Right. And so it was very strange. Um, you know, with my book, we had um um much better treatment from Morning Joe and um and the Daily Show, then I got from Fox, you know, and I've been to Fox for almost ten years now, and the we gave them first right of, of uh, you know first interview right yeah Which I, totally fair and you know right. whatever, and Martha McCallum I'm not mad at her she at least had me on right you know and part of the problem is you know I could ask Tucker but then I feel either beholden to Tucker and not get into a fight with him, or I feel honor bound to get into a fight with them because I don't like a lot of things that Tucker's doing these days. But yeah, and it was, certainly wasn't going to go on Hannity because I, you know, I'd burst into flames. But as you can tell, I feel quite liberated to speak honestly about some of the things that Fox yeah. these days. But um, you know, I go on Martha McCallum's show and I like Martha a lot. I'm ha- happy to be on her show and I'm on it a lot these days. And it's a three minute hit where uh, I have to work in the theme of this book that literally starts 250,000 years ago and covers this vast swath of the history of us and in civilization, into Kanye West's tweets about <laughs> Candace Owens, right? And I, I, it makes me want to take a bath with a toaster, yeah. right? And and at least on Morning Joe, they gave me like 16 minutes no, to actually talk wild. about the book, you know? Yeah. And Trevor Noah, he actually had some – he was very polite and thoughtful, had some interesting reasons to push back, and um, NPR has been much better to me. But uh, it, on our own side. On my own side, it's this weird tension now, where um, lots of people don't want to lift it up for one reason or another. And I remember when my first book came out. Um, you know, at my old editor, Adam Bello, was like, "Books need friends." And I'm still lucky. I mean, I have friends. You know, and, and National Review yeah. treated it well, and I'm not. I'm not really griping about it. It's just, it's a weird time this stuff, and it's one of the reasons why th- I agree to do this podcast, is the personal brand thing, which you kept telling me, is important and actually just sort of clawing out your own slice of the remnant, as it were.
0: You know? Yeah, well, no, I know. it's. I mean, you, you actually have to own the media, right? Mm-hmm. It is a strange time. And I do think that people need to think hard about – bookers in political media need to think hard about what kind of choices they're making and why they're making it, them and are they challenging their audiences? Are they are they more scared about the implications of having done that right. than maybe they should be? You know, I'd encourage listeners to go back and and watch that Morning Joe segment if they didn't see it. It was actually the most unusual piece of broadcast television promotion for a book I think maybe <laughs> I had ever been it was a party to. You were Gobsmacked! When I, I came back was, into the green. Room. I was in the green room, just shocked. I didn't even understand. It felt like it was amazing, but it was. I, I felt like Joe had run into two shows that he didn't even. Yeah, no, serve it was, as the host. Up. I was kind of stunned,
1: and I kept, I kept like looking at the studio clock, going, "You guys, you know, you're still asking me questions. This yeah. thing should be over by now, you
0: know." Well, so look, I would say working back a little bit to the review part of this, I mean, an interesting counter. Uh, that might be instructive, I think would probably be, be David Frum's Trombocracy, mm-hmm. which I was watching up close to, as I represent him also. And he... See, if you take David Frum and Greg Gutfeld and you splice uh, them, you kind of get me. You did <laughs> A little bit. A little bit. Pop culture, sense of humor. So anyway, David, you know, had such a, uh, I think... Um, Trumpocracy was such an overt, relentless, mm-hmm. uh, I think, quite intelligent attack mm-hmm. uh, on the president. And I. it's hard to know what's going on subconsciously at the times. But, you know, I think people might say that it tracks pretty neatly to the perspective of a lot of people who are probably in the newsroom. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was probably an easy book for them to give meaningful attention to. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and did they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I— I was in
1: book hell getting mine done when that came out, so I— Yeah. There's a lot of things I missed. Yeah.
0: Um, but, you know, I think if you'd ask David, he'd say, look, we're—I bl- bl- uh, think he said something approximately to me, like, the liberals and I are friends right now, and I don't know how long that's going to last, right? So, you, strange times make strange bedfellows. Right.
1: No, I'm the House Goy at NPR, mm-hmm. you know? Um Right. And, um, but it's you know, it's, and it's funny the listeners there get very cross because I say one thing and they're like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense," and then I say another thing, I was like, "Oh my god, what is this guy saying?" Yeah. Because right? again, I don't, I'm not about to defenestrate every view I had just you know to pick another tribe. Right. You know. Right. But it's a weird time.
0: No, and I would hope that people kind of remember this time and think to themselves, "Well, if it gave people an opportunity to have uh, multifaceted voices on air, then." This too shall pass. Right. But that shouldn't.
1: Right. All right. So you gotta go. This has gone on too long. I am sure this is gonna be one of these podcasts we do with these every now and then, where a small group of people will like it immensely. <laughs> 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 um, sort of like a spinal tap. Thank the, you the, to all 12 of you. The audience will get very selective by the end of this one. Um,
0: but uh I, right, thought so. I was so sure you were going to ask me what my favorite Guilty Pleasure band was after your oh. legendary tweet <laughs> of this morning.
1: Yeah. Oh, so listeners, if you're hearing this later, I tweeted last night after a couple cocktails, I just asked uh, what um what... What band that you're not supposed to take seriously do you still really love? And I said, I'll go first. The Monkees, which I think is actually wildly underrated. It's an amazing choice. Yes. And um, it went crazy viral. And then morning, Joe Scarborough basically dedicated most of the the show this morning. And I'm driving on I-95 coming up here. And they're just like now back to this this Goldberg tweet thing, and they're just going on and on he and said on. The about Carpenters,
0: it. yeah. Right? His answer
1: was the Carpenters. And the thing is, I've been, it's been misconstrued. I was I didn't mean like, and people were arguing about the Dave Matthews Band and all that. That's not what I meant. I, I meant want your
0: pure true intention. Tell right, us. The,
1: the the originalist interpretation of that tweet. I know yeah. this right? okay. okay. Was the, you know like people who said things like. Spinal Tap or the Blues Brothers or Sha Na. Na. Uh-huh. You know, things. Na Na bands one. that are like not really bands, but right. are facsimiles of them that right. actually turned out to be pretty good. Right, right. right? And I think, I think the Blues Brothers Band is actually a great example of it because the studio musicians for the Blues Brothers Band were literally some of the greatest music. Like a lot of them played for Fogarty and, you know, when he yeah. had his comeback were. And some of that music I thought was just really great, but like. You know, people were saying Metallica. No,
0: that's just, you know, that's an actual band. It's a real band that,
1: <laughs> that that people say you don't like that they don't like, but you know, that's not it. So, what would be?
0: Well, so I'm going to tell you what my band is. And okay, you're going to tell me if it qualifies. Okay, because I think it probably doesn't. But I immediately what immediately sprung to mind for me was Australian super band in excess. Okay,
1: see, yeah, and that that's not what I had in mind. Okay, it, it took a life of its own. This whole thing. Okay, you know, and so. Um, you don't own it anymore. I don't. Right? It, it In the belongs post- to the post-structuralist yeah. <laughs> interpretation of it. All right, and so uh, uh, well,
0: that was a lowbrow conclusion to no, a no, no, but we'll, podcast. No, no, that's
1: fine. Um, <laughs> um, I, I will say I had this idea that of I was going to actually get your advice about if if I want to write fiction, what should I do? But um, uh, we'll save that for another time. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, I do want to just sort of close. If you had to give advice to a normal person who says they want to write a book and they think they have a good book in them, I have my own advice.
0: But what what advice would you give? I think I would say don't start with a book. Yeah. I would say – I mean I think the, the kind of – the development of ideas and audience – and iterations is what gets you to the book. Right. Right? And the access to audience and the opportunity to practice in a way is just it's more profound than it's ever been because we we can all broadcast to the world. Right. So I think that's I think that is uh the most crucial thing. Yeah. Nobody really book publishing doesn't doesn't owe people a living, but they're very open to people who feel like they can work in the marketplace. Yeah. So
1: that's very similar to my advice to people, which is that your goal shouldn't be to write a book. Your goal should be – well, it depends on what your age, right? I mean if you have – if you're retiring and you have this amazing story, right? Write the book, right? Right. Or at least write a good proposal. Yeah. And then, you know, we can talk about finding you an agent. But if you're a young person and you say you want to write a book, that's not the right goal. The right goal is you want to be a writer. and Writers write. Yeah. And you can work on the book on the side, but – Learn to be a writer first. Yeah. And you can get to the book part later.
0: And one last thing about that is the writers also read. Right. Right. And the and the thing that I think oftentimes happens is a really obvious mistake people make is they don't take an intensive amount of time trying to understand the contemporary publishing landscape. Yeah. It is people work really hard to make books work. Some some of them, the biggest phenomenon in our business, are sell a lot of copies. They're really successful. And they're utilized as models for success over and over again. So right. knowing those books and watching those bestseller lists and and uh, working your way in and out of bookstores constantly is – it's a huge asset that yeah. sometimes strangely gets ignored.
1: And the trick is not necessarily to mimic somebody else's book but to understand conceptually why certain kinds of books are doing well,
0: yeah. right? You know? Yeah. Um, Themes, tone. Right. You know.
1: I mean, I remember for a while there was this huge spike in sort of m- weird micro histories.
0: Yeah. Where, where people The salts, the, and, the salts s- and cods of the world. Yeah, yeah, that kind for of thing. rust.
1: Yeah, where they pick one discrete thing and trace it over time. Yeah. I, I like that stuff. Yeah. But there was a weird moment where that was just really popular. And, yeah.
0: Um, mauve. I think Mauve even happened.
1: Don't remember that.
0: Yeah, what, was that the history of the color Mauve? I remember. Yes. I, yeah. I don't know how do you say that I mean, word. I don't know. I, I, I honestly, I don't actually know. remember that book coming out and thinking, "The shark has jumped." Yeah, this is it.
1: Well, my mom always, because you know, the I'm sure you've heard versions of this a million times. You know, the things that sell in publishing are dogs, Abraham Lincoln, Nazis, and golf. <laughs> and so she always wanted to get a book of Abraham Lincoln in an SS uniform teeing up a poodle. <laughs> Just <laughs> guaranteed to succeed. So, anyway, Jay Mendel, thank you very much for doing this. Thank um, you for having me. Everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, if you've made it this far, um, thank you very much for sticking it out. Um, if You've made it this far, you can finish a book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, by the time you hear this, I may be heading on my ro- on the road, going cross country. But uh, we're going to try to do one from the road. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we'll on that one. We'll probably have Jack back on. Um, until then, keep the tweets up at, at Jonah Remnant. Please keep doing the reviews. Uh, you know Arthur Brooks and the commentary podcast and even the editors um, from National Review, they're, you know, they're still niche podcasts compared to this thing. But they're catching up and it's really outrageous. And, uh, and thanks again and I hope you're enjoying your last days of summer.